Hi, this is Alice. He went to work as a field hand when he was 10. At 12, he started shining shoes in a whites-only barber shop. It was the 1940s, and Willie Brown was a black kid in a small, segregated East Texas town, Mineola, where violent, racist mobs did the work of keeping African Americans from voting. It was not a pleasant experience, I can tell you that. But I didn't have anything really to compare it to, except that I had somewhere in the residuals of my mind that there was a better life than worrying every day about your physical safety. There was a better life than uh, being a vegetarian and not by choice. That there was a better life than uh, having only a pot-bellied stove in one room in a household. There was a better life other than outdoor plumbing. There was a better life than having a job of going a block away to get water and bring it back. There was a better life than taking a bath in the third use of the water uh, that had uh, been acquired. I knew that there had to be a better life, and there clearly had to be a better life than having no shoes. Willie Brown would achieve that better life in California, where he moved when he was 17. He had an effervescent personality, a drive, and a knack for politics that was second to none. He went on to become one of the most powerful politicians in California history and one of the most influential black elected officials in the country. He was a member of the California Assembly for 30 years, speaker for 15 of them. Among his many accomplishments there was the legalization of homosexuality in 1975, which won him the lasting devotion of San Francisco's gay community. In 1996, he became the mayor of San Francisco, the city's first black mayor. He was pro-development and pro-social justice. He brought every underrepresented sector of society into his administration, women, gays, Asians, Latinos, blacks. He changed the face of San Francisco in other ways too during his two terms. The Embarcadero, Mission Bay, City Hall with its gold dome, all bear the stamp of Willie Brown. And you know what else bears the stamp of larger-than-life Willie Brown? This week's episode of What It Takes, a podcast about passion, vision, and perseverance from the Academy of Achievement. I'm Alice Winkler. Adam A., this child is gifted. And I heard that enough that I started to believe it. If you have the opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance. It all was so clear. It, it was just like the picture started to form itself. There was no way in which a lie could prevail over the truth. Darkness over light, death over life. Every day I wake up and decide, today I'm going to love my life. Decide. 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 My advice is, if they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there. <laughs> and then along come these differential experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for, but boy, you better not miss them. If you never got to see Willie Brown in action, it's hard to overstate just how charismatic 
and effective a politician he was. No one could work a room like Willie Brown. No one was as large and in charge as Willie Brown. No one worked across the aisle like Willie Brown. And no one was as stylish or threw a better party than Willie Brown. The Academy of Achievement has interviewed Willie Brown twice. The first time in 1996, a few months into his life as mayor of San Francisco. The second time, just weeks ago, in October of 2020. So we'll listen to excerpts from both these conversations chronologically. In the first, Willie Brown recounts his remarkable life story from Mineola to San Francisco. In the second, he reflects on his life in politics and on the current state of affairs as a senior American statesman, you might say. He had his detractors, don't get me wrong, people who thought he cozied up too much to business and ushered in gentrification, people who accused him of cronyism. But one thing almost everyone seemed to agree on, he got things done. That determination to make his mark and do it with a lot of pizzazz started, he said, in Mineola. In the early years uh, of my life, uh, my grandmother was the single most powerful force uh, in existence by my little kid standards. And she was that way uh, because she showed no fear of anything, in spite of the fact that uh, we lived in a totally segregated community. She would not take anything off of white people. Uh, they uh, would mistreat her or attempt to mistreat her and she would stand up to him, but she was an 80-year-old woman, so I had great respect for her. I had uh, great, great respect for my mother. She seemed to have uh, more um, interest in life than any other human being that I'd ever known, although she was only there uh, on weekends. She lived uh, in what we called in-service, up over somebody's garage in Dallas, Texas, working as their maid, but she would dutifully come home practically every weekend. She'd bring with her uh, the excess food that she had cooked and not served to the other families. She'd also bring home uh, the clothing of the kids uh, from the house that she worked for that they would give her. And so she was kind of my treat. She also had a great interest in what we as kids were doing every day, what we were doing in school. And she was very inspirational, although not even a high school graduate on reflection. And so she was very important to me. And I had no, the father had been in the family long before I ever knew him. And my family, my grandmother, uh, before she had her heart trouble, owned the only night spot in the town, the shack, bootlegged the, the booze out of that. And so my house was kind of the center of that little town's uh, activities. And then I had an uncle who literally defied description. He had, had no education, never had a job, uh, but seemingly owned everything in the world. He was a resident of San Francisco, California. He drove his car back once a year. He sent money to his mother, my grandmother, to take care of his sisters, to help take care of his sister's children. And he had a lot of style and a lot of pizzazz about him. And he was kind of every little kid's in, San, in Mineola's hero. And uh, he, of course, being my uncle, uh, was my hero. He also knew how to curse. And that seemed at that time important. Uh, to me. He would never stay for more than three or four days and because apparently there must have been a warrant out for him or something and he had to get the hell out of there but uh, he was uh, very important to me. That was probably the sum total 
of this little kid's collection of people. Although I did have access to things like uh, the Houston Informal, which was a black newspaper, and you would check that newspaper out and you'd read these stories about Harlem and about uh, uh, black entertainers, but they really didn't relate to me and I couldn't relate to them uh, because it just didn't seem like something I would ever be able to do. I had no vision much beyond Mineola, and so my uh, perspective of people whom I respected and admired were pretty much restricted to my family members. I didn't have a whole lot of teachers that had anything going for themselves uh, that would warrant my being uh, uh, an admirer of them. He was educated, if you can call it that, in what was called the Colored School of Mineola, which only went up to the 10th grade. The teachers may not have been well qualified, but Willie Brown says he still got something from the experience. Lots of confidence. They built confidence in us. They gave us lots of self-esteem, and they helped equip us uh, for competition. They made me believe that there was absolutely nothing I could not do. They really, I still have that. I, I just think I may be delayed in when I do it, but I know I can do it. And so uh, I got to tell you that that uh, nothing education, that education which used used textbooks, uh, I used to have a great uh, pride in my ability to recite um, narratives, to recite uh, entire sections of uh, books and stories and poems. And it was pointed out to me on, a, on occasion, in, in when I was in California, after I'd long out of high school, a girlfriend of mine pointed out that I missed a whole three stanzas uh, of the ancient mariner. And I said, oh, no, no, I did not. I know it verbatim. She says, no, you missed three stanzas. I want to show you. She showed me the book. And then I realized that there was obviously a page missing in the book that I had committed to memory and where I got it. And so from that point on, I've never again recited any poetry, any narratives, for fear that my training and the textual materials that I had available to me may have created a gap, which means I would sound like I really didn't know what I was talking about. So I've dropped, you, I know if backwards and forwards, you never hear me doing it. I know the signifying monkey backwards and forwards, you never hear me doing it, because I fear that I may miss some stanzas by virtue of the fact that they were not there. But the fact that I went through the process of being forced by these teachers to commit all of this to memory created an ability for me to have uh, uh, the confidence that I can take textual material and at least regurgitate what I've read just by virtue of the memory training that I went through. I uh, took geometry from my coach in high school. Uh, Charles Gregory knew nothing about mathematics. He knew even less about the geometry part of mathematics. And he said up front, I didn't want to teach this class. They don't have anybody else to teach it. I need the job. I'm your coach. There's not much else I can do for you except to tell you, commit the geometry book to memory. And I did. I got an A in geometry only for having committed the book to memory. Can I do any geometrical, can I solve any geometrical problems? Absolutely not. Can I quote theory 109? Absolutely. But the memory training that Gregory gave me equipped me in my world of law. I can literally go now and cite you chapter and verse, subject matter that I was required to take as a freshman in law school almost 40 years ago, only because 
of that training that I got in that little school. So it was a horrible little school. It was a segregated school, but there were some pieces of it that represents lifelong building blocks for everything that I've done. Self-esteem, personal confidence uh, in, in, in what I can do, a sense of optimism about problem solving, and memory training is what I carry with me from that educational experience. And what were the books that inspired him most? All literature. In my early years, I was a prolific reader of every subject matter, of every story. And I think it was a way in which uh, I frankly survived the horror of living in a segregated community like Mineola. There in those books was my dreams. In those books was my Walter Mitty life. In those books was the kinds of things, and I still find myself daydreaming about being a part of some text and a part of some material. I've gotten away from the reading that I used to do, and I'm sorry I have, but you know, vision and age sometimes dictates another set of circumstances, but everything I could get my hands on, trash and otherwise, I read and I loved. And the thing that I marvel about in my situation is that uh, by all rights, I should really hate white people for the kind of treatment uh, that I received. But there, at this stage of my life and probably for the last 40 years, I can't even conjure up how horrible it really was. So there's no way for me really to describe it. And I carry no residual um, displeasures towards any race of people. I think the experience that I had there made me a more tolerant uh, person than I ordinarily would have been. When Willie Brown got the opportunity to leave Mineola to stay with his flashy Uncle Itzy in California, he had no thoughts of becoming a lawyer or a politician. I actually went off to college to become a math teacher. I was determined that never again would a Charles Gregory be burdened with having to teach black kids, kids, my, my, my friends, my relatives, uh, I wanted to be a math teacher. In part, obviously I'd mo- I was motivated because I'd gotten such great grades in math, not realizing that I really didn't have the skills. That plus the fact that I didn't have to work at the pea house all of the life, and that's a pea processing plant. You didn't have any other jobs. You, you couldn't even be anybody's chauffeur. That town was so poor, there was nothing you there that would inspire you to want to pursue it. Uh, the undertaker seemed to be okay, but the undertaker also had another job. I think he was a lawnmower or something, so there was not enough people dying to even want you to be an undertaker. But teachers got paid. They got paid a lot less than the white teachers, but they got paid. And most of the teachers had cars, and they had the nice houses. All of that said to me that if I couldn't be my uncle, then I was going to be my teacher. To pay for school, he worked as a doorman, a shoe salesman, and a janitor. He joined ROTC. As his eyes opened to the world and campus politics, his interests were running more toward philosophy and poli-sci. By graduation, 
the United States was starting to get involved in the war in Vietnam, and his main interest was in avoiding military service. So he dropped ROTC and settled on a graduate program that would get him an exemption. That's the reason why Willie Brown entered Hastings Law School, where he would become class president and graduate a lawyer in 1958. The first client I ever represented was a hooker. My office was in the Fillmore, which was a black section of town, and you know you, there was no such thing as corporate law, mergers and acquisitions and placements, and so none of that was available to me. You took whatever came through the door. The first person who came through the door was a Zucker, and she was livid that she was being arrested again, and these guys she was doing business with were not being arrested. They were being hurled into the place and marched in to testify against her, and she thought it was unfair because they were doing the same thing she was doing. And I said, you're absolutely right. Suddenly, for me, it was a constitutional issue. And, of course, I got slapped down at every turn because the system says you don't touch the respectables. You only go after the people who are not so respectable. So all of a sudden, I'm in a situation where I have a cause. I believe that whether you're a criminal or you're not a criminal, you're entitled to the same rules and regulations. And we virtually changed that in San Francisco. We, I started getting cases dismissed on the basis of selective prosecution. And that was very exciting for me, and it was one of the steps that I could tell you that turned what was my job into a magical uh, set of circumstances because the word spread throughout the hooker community. There's a guy down there on Sutter Street who has come up with something that keeps us out of jail, gets our cases dismissed. And it was fun to watch the delight in, on these people's faces. It was like magic, and I loved it. He had become politicized during his years of college and law school through the NAACP Youth Council and the Young Democrats. By sheer chance, he had also become close friends with the Burtons, a legendary political family in San Francisco. In 1960, Phil Burton ran for the Democratic County Central Committee and asked Willie Brown to join him on the ticket. He needed a black on the ticket, and I was the only young black lawyer around at that time. Or he needed an Asian on the ticket. He needed, you know, an old person on the ticket. He needed a labor person on the ticket, and he needed a left winger. So a Hallinan, a Willie Brown, some old person, what have you, all became a part of this thing. Of that group, I got elected to the county central committee, and I immediately became involved in who should be the chair of that committee. I think we lost that fight by one or two votes, but I had my taste of the war. And at that moment, I knew that electoral politics uh, were an avenue that I should consider. The first time Willie Brown ran for California State Assembly, he lost. So he doubled down. He honed his debating skills. He cultivated relationships with new backers. I had begun to understand the issues. I had begun to understand direct communications with people. The second time around running, he won. That was in 1964, and for the next 40 years, he never lost another election. But as he told Irv Drasnan, who interviewed him back in 1996, he knew better than to pat himself too eagerly on the back. I think circumstances in the world of politics contribute substantially to whether or not you can be successful. You can be singularly the most talented person around. You can be the most attractive person around. 
but the circumstances may not be there for you to be successful because the public still ultimately determines uh, what happens uh, to you politically by virtue of the casting of their vote. And you cannot ever predict what will move the public in one direction or another. We politicians do focus groups and surveys and we do everything that you think. We do telephonic uh, persuasion, but believe me, people make up their minds on quirks. They make up their minds many times on things unrelated to anything that you have said or in fact done. Whatever the reason, the voters never grew tired of Willie Brown and he never grew tired of serving. And the criticism during his 40 years as an elected official, how did he handle that? Criticism, particularly that which comes from the public press, can terrorize you, can make your life miserable. Particularly if you live on acceptance. If every day of your life you want to be loved in this business, you'd better quit the business. Or you'd better hire a legend of therapist to keep you sane because you are guaranteed to displease 49.9% of the people on any given day. Hopefully never more than 50.1, but 49.9% on a given day. And you are going to be criticized. You're going to be vilified. You're going to be accused of every high crime and low misdemeanor there is. Your sanity is going to be questioned. Your integrity to its soul is going to be questioned. And if you let any of that interfere with you, if you let that define who you are, you should get out of this business. I don't let anybody define who Willie Brown is except Willie Brown. I stopped speaking in the third person a long time ago, but to make this point, I'd have to do it that way. No one defines me for me. I've got the confidence, self-confidence, that what I do and how I do it is consistent with what's in the best public interest. All I have to do is sell it. And so far, I've been able to do that. That's my shield. These days, Willie Brown no longer needs a shield. He is 86 and has been retired from politics since 2004, when term limits brought an end to his tenure as mayor of San Francisco. But he still strolls the streets of the city every day, he says, four or five miles, shaking hands and greeting people with those eyes that can light up a room. And he still works some as a lawyer, as a public speaker, and as a political columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle. His eyesight is failing him now, but he has the energy of a much younger man and is just as dashing as ever. When Mary Jordan arrived for her interview a few weeks ago at the rooftop of the Battery, a private club in San Francisco, she realized she had to dive in with a question about his attire. The suit he was wearing demanded it. I love this line that you said about, I've spent more time in the closet than any straight man. <laughs> Wait a minute, let me say that again. I've s- <laughs> let me try that. More time in the closet than any other straight man in San Francisco. <laughs> what do you mean by that? So when I moved out here from Mineola, Texas, 
My uncle, Itzy, took me to Howard's, a clothing store on Market Street in San Francisco, and bought me my first blue serge suit with a light blue shirt and a yellow tie. My uncle was a dandy. He literally lived for clothing and for cars. His name was Itzy. And I think I got my interest in clothing from him. And then when I ended up being able to afford something other than Brooks Brothers suits, I started shopping in Wilkes-Bashford for what was called Brioni. And I spent hours and hours, week in and week out, shopping for clothing. And I still spent a lot of time shopping for clothing. So the comment about all that time for a straight guy in the closet, that's the reference. Well, this morning, at this beautiful morning in San Francisco, you have an amazing suit on. How many suits do you have? How many pairs of shoes and hats, your famous hats? Far too many of each. For an example, uh, when I got dressed this morning, I went through three different outfits before I came to the conclusion that this particular outfit, it looks English in its fabric, it's Italian, obviously Italian design. It's patch pocket so that it has enough casualness about it. It's heavy enough, but not so heavy that it will be uncomfortable during the course of this interview. So it's online for that purpose. All those things are important to me. I went through three different outfits and I put them on with the shoes and the shirts and I finally settled on what you see. When I look at it, I think, wow, that's thousands of dollars, but you it, know more. What? Let me tell you, it is thousands of dollars. <laughs> Don't believe otherwise. <laughs> Do not believe otherwise. But his love of clothing, in his own words, is a sickness, and the pandemic has not stopped him from pursuing sartorial splendor. It's really important that you take time, just as it's important that you take time to understand the subject matter, to get as much of the facts as you can absorb, to review what other people have said. It's no different in your wearing apparel. The width of your child, width of pants. Many people have their pants too tight. Make sure your shoes, your socks, everything is consistent. The detail that you just went through about your appearance, that's how you're also known about politics, when you're trying to tackle a problem or solve something. Can you walk through um, your approach for political power? You know, how much of it is behind the scenes and kind of thinking layer after layer, who you have to talk to, who do you have to bring in the room? Well, first and foremost, in the world of politics, you've got to know that no matter how bright you are, how able you are, you have to develop very quickly the ability to listen and not talk, listen. You will come to a much better conclusion if you hear everything and everybody. And in particular, if you do your response at the end so that you can include the best wisdom coming from others as part of the approach you believe is appropriate 
to address the issue. That's really the way the political process ought to work. And when that happens, you'd find that more often than not, you will be tapped as the person uh, to provide the leadership uh, on the particular issue. You also got to be prepared very quickly. Understand you cannot take credit for everything. In fact, it would be better if you didn't take credit for anything. You might do it, i.e., you might solve the problem, you may come up with the end, but for whatever reason, don't take credit. In the world of politics, we politicians are so eager to gain the benefit in the public vote side based on our alleged performance that if you constantly take the credit, you rob others of the opportunity to assert their participation and what that participation really meant. When you look back at all the things you've done in politics, what do you want your legacy to be in the state of California? I just want people to remember that I served. That's all. Nothing else. Absolutely nothing else. And I'd love nothing better than to have my family across the board proud of the fact that I served. Quite a few things have been named after you, a school and even a span of the bridge. The Bay Bridge. When you heard about that, what'd you think? I opposed it. Because? I don't really wish to have people vote up on me for honor purposes, particularly other politicians. And you only get those names with other politicians passing it on. I don't wish to be examined in that way. I'd rather have people reflect on how we did Mission Bay in San Francisco, how we did the Embarcadero in San Francisco, how we did the Giants baseball stadium in San Francisco, how we achieved the goal of redoing all of the libraries in San Francisco. That's what I want people to remember about. We did at, under certain circumstances, and I don't need my name I don't want to have folk debate whether or not uh, I was a, a, a good father before you determine whether or not I got that school built. Forget it. Let me build a school. Don't worry about me. I have enough confidence in who I am and what I am about that extending the honor with the name doesn't enhance me any more than I enhance myself. That reference to scrutinizing his private life is something Willie Brown feels strongly about. Why should anyone care how you conduct your personal life so long as it doesn't affect your judgment and your ability to do your job well? In Brown's case, he had and still has a very unconventional marital situation, but he was always completely transparent about it, and that made him pretty scandal-proof. But you do have an unusual relationship uh, with your wife. You're still married after, what, 60 years? Oh, 62 years. 62 Almost years. 63. But you don't live together, is that right? Haven't lived together since 1980. So why do you stay married? Well, I'm not interested in marrying again. I love my family, and I love the family relationship. It would not be that way if there was something in somebody else 
added to that. And I have so much respect for the children that Blanche and I have that I would not want to put them through any challenge of trying to figure out uh, who, when, what, and where in parental relationships. She didn't remarry, and I didn't remarry. You write um, in your book uh, about this, and, and you say, you know, the reality is, if you're an attractive person in public life, you're going to have lots of opportunities to have fascinating relationships with women or men. Um, I can think of very few holders of major office in American life, including women, who've not had private relationships along the way. And yet, invariably, it seems that when these relationships are exposed, the politicians apologize, but not Willie Brown. Why not? That's not for me to apologize for. What, what, I, I didn't promise you that, you know, that I would be uh, eligible to wear red shoes and a white robe and live in the Vatican. That was not who I am. I am about doing good work that affects the lives of people directly and with zero liabilities and zero obligations. And that's who I am. And for more than 60 years, that's what I've done. And I've done it successfully without any downsides. And I think more than anything else in public life, if you can avoid the tag of a hypocrite, you're far down the line of being able to be yourself. And you were upfront about it. You were photographed with all these women. You talked about it. There was nothing hidden at any point. Oh, no. Right. No, no. Not only that. You understand that if somebody wishes in, to date me, uh, I'm proud of the fact that somebody of such quality, a people of such quality, would want to date me. Dating a politician is not a great experience. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the, the, the spotlight and the expectations are so much greater than non-politicians uh, dating. And so I really am grateful whenever anyone uh, that I became interested in wanted to be identified with me. Now, let's talk about one who's in the news right now, Kamala Harris. Yes. How did you, you influence her, do you think? I attended a wedding, and this woman, Kamala Harris, was there. I met Ms. Harris. She was a deputy district attorney in Alameda County at the time. Black woman showed incredible promise uh, if she ever entered the world of politics. And as usual, I was always looking for new political talent. And that happened across the board. What did what, she have that made you think she could be good in politics? First and foremost, the ability to express herself. She was presentable in a very appropriate way. For, and she clearly had a collection of people around her that showed up for that wedding who clearly had some admiration uh, for her and respect for her. You know, she was only 29, and you were 60 at the time, and you dated for about a year, is that right? Yes. Um, you know, in your, your, you've written about um, all the women you've dated in your book, 
Um, no, that's not true. Some of the women. Thank you. <laughs> How many women have you dated? No, no, no I have no idea. <laughs> I, I wouldn't even... I wouldn't even attempt to project. Playgirl magazine once listed Willie Brown as one of the 10 sexiest men in the world. So you get the picture. One of the other women he dated for a while was actress Margot Kidder. Brown hung out with a lot of celebrities and was even invited a number of times to appear in small roles on television and in film, often playing himself, like in The Princess Diaries with Julie Andrews and Anne Hathaway. Despite the threat of rain, the big turnout includes the mayor of San Francisco and a Genovian pear juggler. Do you think it's going to rain on us? It never comes down on Willie Brown. (laughs) But one time, he played a senator, not terribly unlike himself, in a very famous film directed by the very famous Francis Ford Coppola and starring, well, too many people to name. How about Godfather 3? What was that like? Well, that came about in a very unusual way. It was, uh, I think, 1988 or 89, somewhere in that neighborhood. It was being shot in Rome, just outside of Rome to be exact. And Francis, whom I've known for years, uh, was having all kinds of trouble with the guy that he had playing, a a senator. uh, And a black guy was playing the senator. And he kept yelling at the black guy, apparently, Asked the question, present it the way Willie Brown would present it. And he kept pounding the guy that way. And lo and behold, finally the guy turned and became exasperated, as artistic people are sometimes inclined to do. And he proceeded to say, Mr. Francis, why don't you just use Willie Brown and not me? And he walked off the set. And it's a small part, but it's with Al Pacino. Mr. Corleone. Thank you very much for the contribution of the board swing. And we need your help on Sam Wallace's candidacy for judgeship. We always can use a good judge. Thank you. Nobody could play a Willie Brown-type politician better than Willie Brown. And honestly, he's more of a mythic character in real life than on screen. Mary Jordan, our interviewer, could have listened to him for hours tell stories from back in the day. But she also wanted to hear his take on today's issues. There's a lot of talk these days about the demise of California, the once great state. You know, housing's too expensive. There's millions of acres that have gone up in fire. There's homelessness to a degree we've never seen. What do you think about the state of California as we sit here in 2020? It's not as good as it should be. Clearly, we need to be far more attentive to the differences existing in our system and in our society. When I walked into San Francisco in 1951, you could not become a police officer if you were black. You could not become a fireman if you were black. You did not have access to civil service. There was no black person holding public office. We did all those things over the 20 or so years, from 51 to 71 or so, and we were focused on achieving that goal. I believe the whole issue of poverty can be addressed in the same fashion. I believe the issue of 
drug addiction can be done in the same fashion. Alcoholism can be done in the same fashion, but it requires an incredible dedication by a whole body of people. To go from 1951, when Willie Brown first arrived in San Francisco, to 1975, when George Moscone got elected to the mayor of San Francisco, we did some marvelous things. But what's the difference now? It's very clear the problems now, as it, as it was in the 50s and 60s, is the difference that you were able to work with Republicans, famously uh, got along with Ronald Reagan and Arnold Schwarzenegger when they were governors. I mean, what is no, it? was a better example than either one of those two. You understand that Democrats did not elect me speaker. Democrats participated. I got 51 votes, 41 required. I got 51 votes for the speakership out of 80. 28 of those votes were from Republicans. There were 32 Republicans, 28 of them voted for me. There was 48 Democrats, only 23 of them voted for me. So for my ascendancy to the speakership, a job which I held twice as long as any other human being ever in the history of California, the best anybody ever done on that score was seven years. I did 14 and a half years as speaker. A combination of Republicans and Democrats, the whole membership for the first time in the history of California elevated me to the speakership. Are we ever gonna go back to those days where someone- It's totally and completely necessary. The business of simply being of one political party and of one political persuasion doesn't work. You've got to be prepared to have a problem addressed in a way that affects all people, whether they're Republicans, Democrats, Green Party members, independents. You've got to do it in such a way that it embraces the life and the response for everybody. And that takes some real dedicated energy, you personally demonstrating your willingness to do it. But let me ask you about homelessness, um, because there are 10 cities now all over this city. And in your inauguration, you famously fed thousands of homeless people. So homelessness is not a new problem, but it seems to be bigger and more visible. Um, is there, what's the way forward for San Francisco? How, do, how does this get better? Build more housing and stop allowing it to be built only by nonprofits. Put profit making into the house building business with the obligation to do something about housing people who have limited resources, period. I did that south of market when I did Mission Bay, when I created gave the University of California 43 acres to put a hospital down there, 5 million square feet of research space from the private sector. Uh, what happened there, 6,900 units of housing 
people who worked there, but 1,700 of them were people on the poor side, those who could not afford it. But there could not be any distinction between the quality of those living spaces versus the people who were paying market rate prices. That's the kind of aggressive effort that ultimately needs to be made because you've got to be in a position so that all of the system, all of us embrace the solution, period. Do you think We've not done that because we all stand on the side and say, take people out of a tent, you put them into a hotel in the city and you pay $8,000 a month for a hotel room with all the services that go with it for someone who was initially in a tent. That's the expenditure of money that you should not So the, the tents and the hotels should give way to actual permanent affordable no housing. Which uh, also means you've got to change the permit process. You've got to change the approval process. And that's a challenge because we have these crazy rules that say anybody can challenge if I intend to build something. I intend to build an ice cream parlor, as the newspaper said, over the weekend. This guy put up almost $200,000 of his own money, and he wanted to do an ice cream parlor in place in a location that had previously been a restaurant. Five months, six months later, eight months later, the city still hasn't proved it because the city authorized anyone else who might be interested to oppose it. Opposition comes from a competitive ice cream guy several blocks away. The person in charge, you've got to say, that's nonsense. We're going forward. We're going to open that ice cream joint. So and what's the problem here? Too much regulation, too much uh, red tape, too much government. What, what's the problem? The whole, in that's this exactly what it is. We have, in an effort to have full participation, we've not imposed any responsibility because if you did it out of vengeance, you did it without any real merit, I ought to be able to go after you to help pay for the delay that you caused me. We also should have a way in which we say, we anticipate the population is gonna increase by 5%, we're gonna increase the housing by 5% annually, period. That has to be the way, we can't have the housing come five years after the growth in the population, because it'll be, by then, a need for 25%, not 5%. But we're not doing, we're not making decisions that way. We're so concerned, frankly, about process and procedure. I was always a product person. I was never a procedure person. I was never a process person. I was always product. And I always say to every politician whom I lecture to today, you'd be surprised of how successful you can be if you let product speak for you rather than your alleged process adherence. That's why, while most people use the term Machiavellian as an insult, Willie Brown embraces it. And he believes that every person who enters politics ought to read Machiavelli over and over as a guide. In all of the challenges that I've faced at all times, my arguments have always been do it 
my way, and let's look at the results. And you can take credit for the results. I don't care. I'm far more interested in seeing that it's done. And that has been the cornerstone, frankly, period. The ends Born justify example. the means. If, well, if in the end, all these people are helped, if there's cut corners or stepped I, I, on toes. It's really not cut corners. What you're doing is you really are eliminating the roadblocks that never should have been there to begin with. Some people will call it cutting corners, but I don't call it cutting corners. I don't accept it as cutting corners. We need to make sure this place is seismically sound. Cutting corners would be to build it faster and quicker, but it's not seismically sound. You better make sure it's seismically sound. You'd like to build it faster and quicker, but make sure it's seismically sound. And it shouldn't take any more time to be seismically sound. When I walk the streets now, I'm so angry that all the time we spent since the 14th of March, we still haven't finished doing the potholes, the sidewalks, and all those things on the streets that we've had these orange roadblocks for all this time. I go down to Fisherman's Wharf. I was there yesterday, and I could not believe that I'm still looking at some of the disruption that the street development process. So why the paralysis? The why is this paralysis? Even now when the streets are empty, it should be- Because there's nobody who is saying, you have 48 hours, finish it. How would you describe yourself? I think I'd describe myself as just kind of a practical uh, person trying desperately to do good. You got some flack over the years for appointing friends to jobs. I mean, one of the reasons you were so powerful is that you had all these jobs that you could appoint people to, and, and people earned a lot of money. Um, and at one point, even the FBI was looking into it. They never found anything. Um, do you, when you look back on that, um, I've heard you say, well, that's what people do. You appoint people to, to uh, positions. Uh, how do you look back on, on that issue? I have always done my best to associate myself with the best. And in most cases, invariably, the best have been friends. You were a civil rights leader. Um, and in your hometown in Texas, you saw segregation and racial injustice. Um, when you see what's going on today with Black Lives Matter and all kinds of protests and, and many, many black people who, who say there's been almost no progress, what do you think? You know, it's, it's a long, it's decades since we were fighting the same fight. Is it any better now than it was in the 60s? And what's the way forward? Of course it's better now than it was in the 60s. Just think about it. You have a black mayor of San Francisco, a woman. You could not have had that in the 60s. You have a black U.S. senator from California. You could not have had that in the 60s. You have a, a black woman who became the attorney general of the state of California. You could not have had that uh, in the 60s. Colin Powell would have never been uh, the chief of staff 
of uh, uh, Joint Chiefs, Tiger Woods, becoming the best golfer in the world. All those things could not have happened without the transition that took place from the time I left Mineola until the time I became speaker. All those things happened because there was a change. So yes, there have been changes, but be very clear, the level of racism is as intense and as identifiable now as it has been in the history of this country. And we clearly need to continuously address the issue. Just think, the head of Wells Fargo made the comment that the reason that they don't have more executives in the financial world is because there's not that kind of talent among people of color. That's clearly an expression of suppressed bias and suppressed racism. That happens at every single solitary level. You've got uh, a person on the Supreme Court who, Supreme Court Justice, who does not lip one finger to address the issue of racism from the judicial standpoint in this nation. At least he doesn't demonstrate it accordingly. So there is still the need for people like Willie Brown in 1951. If you're black, if you're interested, if you're white, and if you're interested, you ought to be equally as focused and as dedicated. But you ought to do it in a way that causes the change to actually take in place. You have a very practical political history, right? Problem, and these are the steps. So as a country, how do we improve race relations and reduce discrimination? What do you do? Right out of the box, you've got to live with the fact that there is racism, period. I think I said one time that when I first got on a bus in San Francisco, a public transit bus, I had been on a public transit bus in Dallas. And in Dallas, they had a slot. On one side, it said colored. On the other side, it said white. And that slot could be moved from point to point on the seats based upon who happens to be on the bus. And that occurred. When I got on the bus here in San Francisco, there was no division. But as I rode across town, mine was the last seat filled unless another black person got on. The issue of racism and discrimination, almost indigenous to this society, almost indigenous to this nation, and it all comes from the horror of slavery. We have not taught accurately and historically and honestly in this country about racism. And until we are conscious of that, racism will continue to exist. Let me just talk about voting. Uh, you were a civil rights leader. You saw it firsthand that there has been violence over the years where people blocked others' right to vote. Um, are you concerned now in this election at what some see as efforts to suppress the vote? Yes, I am. Uh, and I've always been. Every election, I've been concerned that 
there was discouragement coming from some quarters for people to be able to cast votes. We need to figure out how to get 100% voter participation. The end results are much better on the quality side for this democracy if everybody votes, period. And the business of telling people uh, for whatever reason they can't vote, the business of saying you're not qualified, we ought to be encouraging voter participation, not discouraging voter participation. With the electronic world being what it is today, with technology being what it is, we ought to be able to vote from our dining room table if we choose to do so. If I can pay all of my bills and never go into a bank, if I can receive all of the money due me without ever seeing a check, those records reflect themselves as accurately and the technique of verification is such we can do the same for voting. How do you deal with setbacks? You know, you, you lost your first try at political office. You lost your first uh, try to be speaker. And you, you kind of seem to dismiss it as uh, a blip and kept going. A lot of people get stopped in their tracks. And if they do, they shouldn't have been a candidate to begin with, because you're not promised success. So you have to be prepared to work for it. You may believe that you are the best, and you have to prove it. That is what kept me going. You said you're not promised success. What do you think life does promise you? Opportunity. Period. And what's the best opportunity that you think you've seized? Good health. And yet, it's interesting you say that because you have um, problems with your eyes, right? You, you have, you, you've lost some vision. I have a serious eye problem, so much so that I can't drive my car anymore. But I still have my car. Because I know that at some point, medical science is going to figure out a way and I anticipate, frankly, with the number of experiments and treatments going on now, that I will have vision long before I die. How long are you gonna live? Until I pay all my bills. <laughs> <laughs> if I die, the economy is screwed. <laughs> all right. Do you always have this twinkle in your eye? <laughs> You have no idea how many people call me. How many? I want to hear how many. So during this interview, how many people called you? I count 13. You do love people, don't you? Oh, yeah. As a matter of fact, I don't know what I'd do if they didn't call. <laughs> well, your phone will always be ringing. Thank you, Willie Brown. All right. The irrepressible former mayor of San Francisco and former speaker of the California Assembly, Willie Brown, Jr. He recorded this conversation in October of 2020 with Mary Jordan for the Academy of Achievement. By day, Mary is a correspondent extraordinaire for The Washington Post and the author of The Art of Her Deal, The Untold Story of Melania Trump. 
Earlier in this episode, we heard portions of Willie Brown's 1996 Academy interview with filmmaker Irv Drasnan. If you haven't voted yet, get on it. I'm Alice Winkler, and this is What It Takes from the Academy of Achievement. What It Takes is funded by the Catherine B. Reynolds Foundation. Thanks to them, and thanks to you for listening.